Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145, where this morning we are going to look at the grace of God. In most churches in America, there is this interesting irony concerning the grace of God. If you were to attend the average church, if you heard anything about God at all, you would most likely hear about the compassion of God, or the mercy of God, or the patience of God, or the forgiveness of God, or His love, but especially the grace of God. Whenever God is served up to the people in the average church in America, He's usually served up in small portions that are all sweets, nothing hot, nothing bitter, nothing strong tasting. And people in these kind of churches uh, with loud laments cry out against those legalistic churches that teach everything the Bible has to say about God. Some of God's attributes are so negative, they think. They drive people away from church. And they reason to themselves, you know, it's easier to catch flies with honey rather than vinegar. And that is what those churches catch. (laughs) Flies. And they swarm like the flies of Egypt to see what they can get from God. They're nothing but spiritual pirates coming to church only to plunder the treasure chest of God's grace, never thinking once how they could give back to God in return. These are the self-proclaimed champions of grace. But if push came to shove, if they were really pinned down and asked to give a good biblical explanation of grace, they would be weighed in the balances and been found wanting. J. A. Packer, lamenting the sad state of affairs in many churches concerning the grace of God, said, quote, Many church people may pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. Their conception of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought means nothing to them. It does not touch their experience at all. Talk to them about the church's heating or last year's accounts and they are with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points and their attitude is one of differential blankness. They do not accuse you of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that the words have meaning. But they feel that whatever it is you are talking about, it is beyond them. And the longer they have lived without it, the surer they are that at their stage in life, they do not need it, end quote. Churches today like to sort through the attributes of God. They like to just pick out the sweet attributes. But by presenting only a portion of God to the people, they really present an idol who is not God at all. And the great irony of it all is that these self-proclaimed champions of grace know nothing or very little of what true grace is. Because you cannot know about God's grace and His love 
and his compassion and his mercy and his long suffering if you do not know about his holiness, his justice and his wrath. Then we have already learned that the goodness of God encompasses all the moral attributes of God, which include his holiness, justice and wrath. And all the moral attributes of God are mixed together and they overlap. They're kind of like colors in the rainbow. You look at a rainbow and you see all those beautiful colors. And if you look closely, you will notice that those colors blend. You have yellow, which kind of turns into yellowish green, which turns into green, which turns into bluish green, which turns into blue, which turns into bluish violet, which turns into violet. And there is always this blending of, of colors. And there is an infinite number of shades in the rainbow. Well, so it is with the goodness of God. There is an infinite mixture of his attributes. And to try and take one of those attributes out of the scripture, even though they overlap, is very difficult. Because when you speak of one, you're speaking of the other. Yet this is what we're trying to do. And we have already learned that the goodness of God is the overall arching attribute of God which describes all of God's moral attributes. And I hope you realize that whenever you experience any part of God's goodness, you always experience God's goodness by His grace. And whenever you experience God's grace, it's an expression of His love. And whenever... You experience any of God's love, it's by his grace and his mercy. And you can mix up those attributes in those sentences any way you wanted, and they would all be true. All of these things are part of God's goodness, and they are all expressions of love and mercy and grace and compassion and kindness. And this morning we're going to look at the grace of God, and it is a huge topic. It's way too big to cover. And I can only hope to expand your mind just a little bit to understand God's grace. But I am afraid that you will have to wait until we study the holiness of God and the justice of God and the wrath of God before you really begin to understand the grace of God. But since our time is short this morning, I will set before you two major points. First, the fact that God is gracious starting in Psalm 145 and looking to the rest of the scriptures, and then how God's grace relates to you. Let's look at each of these. The fact of God's graciousness. Look at Psalm 145, verse 8, and notice what the text says. The psalmist writes, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Now, the Hebrew word translated gracious in this verse is a word that means to grant favor or to be kind or to be gracious to somebody. And if you grew up in the church, if you grew up in the Sunday school classrooms, you probably learned a little simple definition of grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a pretty good definition. Jesus died to bring God's riches to those who would believe. He paid the price. It was at his expense. And of course, that simple definition might be expanded a bit to encompass all men, 
We could define grace as God's blessing given to all mankind, but especially to the repentant who, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, receive the superabundant riches of God's abounding grace at Christ's expense. Now, the word translated gracious in verse 8, according to Brown Driver's Briggs Hebrew lexicon, is only used of God who hears the cry of the vexed sinner. Packer says, quote, The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity, end quote. And that is true. Now, what is interesting, though, is when I began to study Psalm 145, verse 8, I discovered that these exact words in this verse appear, or almost identical, um, the exact words appear in six other places in the Old Testament. And I thought to myself, that is interesting. I wonder why that is. And I wonder who was the first one to say it just like this. And I found where that first place is, the fountainhead of all the other texts which refer to this wonderful, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness God, and that is Exodus 34, 6. Turn there, Exodus 34, 6. This is a text we've looked at before. It is the text where... Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says, no man can see me and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll stick you in the cleft of the rock and I will let all my goodness pass before you. And then God, when he passes before Moses, he declares who he is. And this is what we read in Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Here we have broken down in this verse basically two categories, who God is and what God does. And when God declares to us who he is, he says, I am the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is not Moses' description of God. This is not David's description of God. This is God's description of God. This is God telling us who he is. And who he is, is the God of compassion and grace, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that is the statement that many other people in the scriptures draw from. Psalm 148 is one of them. Psalm 86.15, Psalm 103 verse 8, Nehemiah 9.17, Joel 2.13, Jonah 4.2. All use that almost either the identical phrase or, or nearly the identical phrase. And when you look at the rest of the scriptures, parts of this phrase are repeated many, many, many other times. Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9.17, speaking of the fathers of Israel and their sin in the past, says this. Now, as I read this verse, you imagine in your mind what Nehemiah is going to say. 
Nehemiah says of these sinful rebels, they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to the slavery in Egypt. You remember this story. We want to go back to Egypt. We miss the leeks and melons of Egypt. Just let us go be slaves. We're tired of this manna. We're tired of trusting the Lord God Almighty in the desert who's been feeding us every day, who delivered us from Egypt by ten plagues and split the Red Sea. We're tired of seeing miracles every single day and being befed by the hand of God and hearing the voice of God. We're tired of it. And you can imagine what's coming next. And God's wrath came upon them and slew a hundred thousand of them. But no, that's not what Nehemiah says. He says to God, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. That is incredible. The prophet Joel who prophesies, if you've ever read Joel, it is a book that is scary. The day of the Lord, the judgment and dark gloom that's coming upon the earth, the the armies that are just devastating the landscape and wiping out everything and God's fury being poured out on sinful rebels. And Joel says in Joel 2.13, Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting evil. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah tried to flee from God's call upon his life. God says, go preach judgment to Nineveh and say, in three days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And Jonah didn't want to do it. Do you know why? Because the Ninevites were wicked. They were a godless, heathen people. And the Ninevites warred against Israel and they took captives and slew them and literally nailed their carcasses to the walls of their cities and let them rot in the open. And Israel hated them, and Jonah hated them, and Jonah did not want to go and preach to them. Do you know why? He was afraid they would repent, and God would forgive them. That's what he was afraid of. And what is amazing in this text of Jonah is that after the whole whale incident, Jonah, who is one man, with one message, repent, for judgment is coming, and one method, preaching, goes to a culture that has no background in the Bible or God or anything, and walks through the city, proclaims the message, and I tell you, the greatest revival that has ever occurred since... All the history of the earth happened and the entire city of Nineveh, a huge city, all repented and believed in God in one fell swoop because of the preaching and power of God's word through a very stubborn and reluctant man. 
And Jonah said this in Jonah 4.2 to God. Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. The same thing we read in Psalm 145, 8. The same thing that appears in all those other texts. God is a gracious God. Matthew Henry said, The Lord is gracious to those who serve him. He is full of compassion to those that need him, slow to anger to those that have offended him, and of great mercy to all that seek him and appeal to him. He is ready to give and ready to forgive, more ready than we are to ask, than we are to repent. End quote. That is so true. I read some pretty heavy definitions of God's grace this week. Now here's a good one that I like. Grace is the unearned, undeserved favor of God. That's pretty simple. I mean, I have never seen theologians launch into such complicated statements using words I have never heard of to describe something so simple. The word unearned is in this definition on purpose. It's not just a filler word. Paul in Romans 11:6 said, "For it is by grace, for if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace." That's why that word unearned is in there. If it's by works, it's not by grace. You've got to know that. Paul in Galatians 5:4 made this very strong statement to the Galatians who were trying to be saved and receive God's grace by works. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. It's over. If you try to work to receive God's grace, it's over. It cannot be earned, not even in a little degree. Paul, speaking of salvation in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, I love how he says this, just to make sure that no one mistakes how they've been saved. He says this, it's by grace you have been saved, unearned. By grace, unearned favor, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, something you don't earn. Not a result of works, something you don't work for, that no one should boast. I mean, he couldn't say it any clearer. He used every adjective he could. Not a result of works, gift of God, not from among yourself, grace. Paul, right before his death, spoke of God's grace to Timothy. This is one of my favorite verses, 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now, listen to this. He has saved us. He has called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. Not our purpose. 
his own purpose and grace, unearned favor, which was granted us in Christ Jesus, not since we did a bunch of good deeds, but granted from all eternity. Before you go back to all to the end of eternity, which is a long ways, and go beyond that, that is when God chose to save certain men and women by his grace. So when I say unearned, I mean that. Unearned. You can do nothing for it. If you can do something for it, it's not grace. If you can work for it, it's not grace. It's only grace if it's unearned. The second thing that we need to understand is that it is undeserved. Undeserved. Baptist theologian John Gill said, The grace of God arises from the goodness of his nature and not from anything in the creature. And it is exercised according to his sovereign will and pleasure. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Exodus 33:19. It is independent of all merit and worth in creatures and of all works done by them and is always opposed to them in the scriptures. It's undeserved. You can't work for it and you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it and no one else deserves it. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. No one deserves it. It's undeserved. If it was deserved, wouldn't be God's grace. It would be a wage, justice. And people are so warped in their thinking about themselves today. Most people see themselves as, you know, I'm pretty good. Well, compared to who? The holy perfection of God? You're way down on the totem pole. You're so far down that you can't even see yourself. No, Jesus made this clear to the rich young ruler who in his self-righteousness said, well, I have kept all the commandments, good teacher. He says, listen, there is only one who is good. Oh, men may have degrees of goodness compared to one another, but compared to God, all are depraved. And you and I know full well, we're all depraved, we're all sinners, and we're all wicked. You may not have sinned every sin to every degree, but you've sinned every sin to some degree. The scriptures say you break one law, you break them all. You may not have murdered somebody, but I tell you, if you've ever been angry, you've committed the sin of murder to a degree. And you are guilty as a murderer before God the righteous judge. Many Christians, when they hear of God's predestination of the elect, get indignant because their mind, in their mind, it's just not fair. But listen, fair and grace don't mix. Fair is an expression of justice. Grace is unearned, undeserved. How can you demand from God what you don't deserve? Try it next time when you go to your employer. Hey, I want an extra week's worth of pay. See if you'll say, oh, okay. It's foolishness. It's absurdity. A.W. Tozer, speaking to this very issue, has said, quote, seeing that salvation is a gift, who has any right to tell God on whom he ought to bestow it? Is it not that the giver ever refuses this gift to any who seek it wholeheartedly and according to the rules which he has prescribed? 
No, he refuses none who come to him empty-handed and in the way of his appointing. But if out of the world of impenitent and unbelieving rebels, God is determined to exercise his sovereign right by choosing a limited number to be saved, who is wronged? Is God obliged to force his gift on those who value it not? Is God compelled to save those who are determined to go their own way? G.S. Bishop put it this way, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God they cannot turn to Him, so blind they cannot see Him, so deaf they cannot hear Him, so dead that He Himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection life. End quote. That is exactly true. Grace is undeserved. Oh, it is so undeserved. It would be one thing if we were perfectly holy and righteous. Then you might think that God might want to give us grace, but still it would be undeserved. If you were perfect, it would be undeserved. But you aren't. And it's still not deserved. God is grace in essence, and God is gracious indeed. And you think to yourself, well, God... Jack, I mean, isn't it, though, isn't it true, though, I mean, that we do believe in salvation, don't we? Of course we do, but how do you do that? By grace. Who is the one who draws you? God, by His grace. Who is the one who grants you repentance? God, by His grace. Who is the one who has the Holy Spirit come upon you so you can believe? God, by His grace. And then what do you? You respond to God's grace. You use the grace of God to do the will of God. It's always that way. You can only please God by using His grace. You steal from God to please God. It's the only acceptable way. If it's not by His Spirit, if it's not by faith, doesn't count for the glory of God. You live every moment off of God's grace. And that leads us to our second point. How God's grace relates to you. Now we could just go off on just a million directions here. But I'm going to give you the two general categories of grace. When you study grace, theologians break them up into two categories. And you got to know this. Because it makes many other scriptures clear. There is common grace and special grace. Common grace is the grace that God gives all men. Special grace is the grace God gives only to the elect. Some theologians have called it natural grace and supernatural grace or general grace and specific grace, but we will use the terms common grace and special grace. Common grace is limited in its amount and it's given to all men. You can see it in Psalm 145 if you turn back there. Psalm 145 verse 14 The psalmist says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Do you know why the Bible tells us to continually praise God and thank Him? Because we are continually living off of His grace. That's why. Every day you live off of the grace of God. I can see you're all out there, so you must have been born. That was by God's grace. I can see you're not dead. 
that's by God's grace. I can see that you're in a very nice location, even though you should be in the lake of fire, suffering eternal torment. It's by grace. I know that all your life you have had food enough and water enough to stay alive. It's grace. You go outside, you enjoy the sunshine, you feel the rain, which helps the plant grow. It's grace. The planet you live on has not hurled out of orbit into the deep recesses of space away from the sun and you are not frozen to death. It's grace. It has not been sucked into the gravity of the furnace of the sun and burned you up. That's grace. It has not collided with some other orbiting body that is rotating around in crisscrossing patterns in the orbit around, around the sun. That's grace. And you have gifts and skills and abilities. It's grace. I'm not talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about some of you are good mechanics. That's grace. Some of you are well organized. That's grace. Some of you are good with people. That's grace. Some of you are tall. That's a curse. <laughs> Sometimes it's handy. But not when you're trying to buy clothes. You have jobs. It's by grace. You have a job. You take a warm shower this morning. It's grace. You ever taken a cold shower? What if we all go home, take cold showers tomorrow? You'd be thankful for warm ones the next day, wouldn't you? You have a family. It's grace. You go through trials and God teaches you things. It's grace. All of our lives, we live off of God's grace. Every moment... Of every day, every second, we live because of God's grace. And if you have never thought of it, please do continually. Please make it the overflowing praise of your heart to always be continually grateful for all the grace that God showers you with continuously every day. And not only you, but even unbelievers. This is what's amazing. That all the people out there who don't know Jesus Christ are living every moment by his grace. Every one of them is just thriving off of God's grace. They're like leeches ever drawing and sucking from God's grace, but never giving God thanks. They don't praise him for their health. They don't praise him for the things they have. They don't praise him, period. They just take and take and take and they use the grace of God to rebel against him and do those things he hates. May we never be like that. But someone might ask, well, but aren't others kind of a means of grace? I mean, don't we get grace from other people rather than God? I mean, you know, I mean, if, you know, if my boss decides to give me a raise, I mean, isn't that, isn't he blessing me or... Or, you know, if, if, let's say I read the Bible, I mean, uh, you know, isn't that the means of grace so I can get the grace of God? Aren't I doing something? No. Look at this. I, I give somebody a whole stack of $100 bills and I say, hey, go give this to so-and-so. Don't tell them who it's from. So they take it from me and they go and they give it to you and say, here. Now, did they give you that money? No, they're just couriers. And that's how it all is. If we experience anything good in this life, we experience it from the hand of God. Oh, if it's your boss who gave you the raise, well, who gave your boss that job? Who keeps your boss alive? 
Who gave your boss the opportunity, the education? Who gave your boss everything he is? Life and existence. God. Your boss lives off the grace of God and he is doing nothing but passing it along to you. And so when it comes down to it, if you go back and back, it's all from God. It's all his grace. If it's good, it's from God. All good gifts come down from the Father of lights, James 1.17 says, and there is no other source. He is the fountainhead, the wellhead of all grace. And so any good thing you experience from the hand of a believer, from whatever, but you say, oh yeah, but what if I, you know, read my Bible? Listen, you would only exist by God's grace, right? You'd only be saved by God's grace. You'd only have a desire to read the word by God's grace. And it would only be acceptable to God if he gave you the grace to want to read it. And the grace to give you something to read. Everything you have is God's grace. We need to get this clear here. It's not, oh, God's been so gracious to me because he gave me this. He's always so gracious. He's more gracious than we know. And an amount greater than we can imagine. But what's more incredible than this is special grace as marvelous as common grace is special grace just blows it out of the water and this is where words fail it begins before the earth was created we read in that second timothy 1 9 passage that you were saved not by works, but according to his purpose and his grace granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It happens before time, before the world was created, God decides to make a plan to receive the most glory and honor for himself. A plan that is so far above our thoughts and our ways that we can't even comprehend it. And he creates a world And he creates a whole universe to surround that world. And scientists today are still figuring out what's going on out there. It's so amazing. And he creates all these plants and all these creatures and creates man, the bearers of his own image on that planet. He makes them perfect and the planet perfect and only gives them one rule. Do this and they don't. They rebel against him. So what does he do? He kills innocent animals so that they could be forgiven and close them, close them with, their, with the skins of these animals. And so what happens? They get their act together and never sin again? No. They continue to sin and their children sin. And the earth becomes so wicked, wicked that every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continuously. So he sends a flood. He wipes them all out. Except for a few, which he saves by his grace. And you would think, well, these have probably learned the lesson. No, they didn't. The earth immediately became wicked. They decided to accomplish their own deed. They didn't spread out and multiply over the face of the earth. They tried to build a tower to heaven, so God dispersed them. So then did they get it? No. They continued to rebel. And so God chose for himself a people, a rebellious people, a stubborn and stiff-necked people, by which he would give his word and by which he would send the Messiah. And so he gave them his law. And what did they do? They rebelled. But in the law, he gave them a way that they could atone for their sins. And so they did. But they still rebelled. So he sent the prophets to warn them. And they rebelled. And he sent more. And they rebelled. And he sent more. And they rebelled. And he sent plagues and famines. And they rebelled more. And so he sent some more prophets. And they still rebelled. And he took them to captivity. And then they rebelled. When they came back, they rebelled. 
And so finally, he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself entered into the virgin's womb, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he might live in a sin-cursed world among rebels who are desperately sick and deceitful above all else. And he lived a perfect life and willingly gave himself on the cross so that they, through faith in him, might have the free gift of eternal life. People, that is grace. That is grace. That is undescribable. God is so good and so loving and so kind and so compassionate to save unworthy, undeserving rebels like us. But that is exactly what he has chosen to do. God made a way through Jesus Christ so that all who would repent and believe could have everlasting life. And most will admit they are sinners, but Satan even fools some of these. You may have run into people. I run into people like this sometimes. You know, you start sharing the gospel with them. I talk about God and you go, well, you know, I could never, you know, do that. It's like, why not? Oh, well, you don't know what I've done. No, I do know. You don't know what Christ did. Some people are deceived by Satan into thinking that they are such great rebels that God could never save them. This is a lie from the pit. What sinner is beyond the reach of God's infinite grace? None. Consider Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees persecutor of the church, blasphemer against God, a violent aggressor in his own words. James Hervey described him in 1751 with these words, quote, Behold that bitter and bloody persecutor Saul. When breathing out threats and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he had committed, the inoffensive families he had already ruined were not sufficient to assuage his vengeful spirit. They were only a taste, which, instead of glutting the bloodhound, made him more closely pursue the track and more eagerly pant for their destruction. He is still a thirst for violence and murder. So eager and insatiable is his thirst, he even breathes out threatenings in slaughter. Acts 9.1 his words are spears and arrows, and his tongue a sharp sword. Tis as natural for him to menace the Christians as to breathe the air. Nay, they bled every hour in the purpose of his rancorous heart. It is only owning to want of power that every syllable he utters, every breath he draws, does not deal out deaths and cause some of the innocent disciples to fall, who, upon the principles of human judgment, would not have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable destruction. Nay, would not have been ready to conclude that if there were heavier chains and a deeper dungeon in the world of woe, they must surely be reserved for such an implacable enemy of true godliness. Yet, admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is admitted into the goodly fellowship of the prophets. 
He is numbered with the noble army of martyrs and makes a distinguished figure among the glorious company of the apostles. End quote. Are you more sinful than Saul of Tarsus? No. No, you are not. God's grace is enough for you. It's enough to save you. It's enough to receive you into his presence, but you must repent. God will give you everything you need to walk in his ways if you do. He will change you. He will transform you. He will give you all sufficient, abounding grace so that you will have what you need in every circumstance. He's the God of grace. So if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ this morning, right now is the time. Do it. And for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you never better wake up to the grace that surrounds you, that engulfs you, that is not only the common grace, but the special grace God has given you, your spiritual gifts, the Word of God, all the blessings you have because of the believer and all the things that await for you in eternity future. Why? Because you rebelled against God. Because you were an enemy. He is going to save you and transform you and cause you to rule and reign forever and ever. John and John 1.16 says, For of his fullness, now listen to this, we have all received already and grace upon grace you are smothered with the grace of god if you know jesus absolutely drenched in it romans chapter 5 is just full of statements about the grace of god let me read verses 2 15 17 and 20 Paul says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. You stand in grace as a believer. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of one, speaking of Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The grace of God, the gift of God's grace, abounds to the many who believe. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, the law came so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Makes you want to write a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. One of the Puritans did. Ephesians chapter 2, which we looked at earlier, Paul describes how we're dead in our trespasses and sins, how we're walking according to the power of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, and we all just marched in just high-handed rebellion against God, and then he says this, but, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, now listen to this, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Imagine that. God will spend all eternity exercising his omnipotence, his all-powerful will, 
to lavish upon all believers the indescribable abounding grace of God. And that is what all believers have already in Christ. You have it. It's yours. You know, we talk about this, oh, I'm going to go home after church. No, you're not. You're going to go to the place where you reside as an alien and stranger. This earth is not our home. This world is not our home. This earth is sin-cursed and run by the power of the prince of the air. And you're just merely an ambassador. And one day God will call you home where you will spend all the ages worshiping him and he will set his heart to pour upon you the abundant riches of his grace for all eternity. That is so incredible. That is just beyond description. Listen to what Peter says. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace will do it. And he will do it for you. Contemporary singer Jonathan Pierce sings a song written by Connie Harrington and Steve Seiler. This is... My all-time favorite song, if you want to know. The words are as follows. I lie awake at night and wonder how you could still put up with me. I know I push you to the limits, or so it seems. I start each day with good intentions. Then, I fail you in a thousand ways. Somehow, you keep forgiving me for the same mistakes. No fault... No wrong, no dark of night can hide me from your eyes. I cannot fall or climb farther than your grace can reach. I know you've heard this prayer I'm praying of what I've done and where I've been. I don't deserve your mercy, but once again, no fault, no wrong, no dark of night can hide me from your eyes. I cannot fall or climb farther than your grace can reach. Glad bless us all, the weak and weary, captives of our flesh and blood. Our only freedom is the refuge of your love. No fault, no wrong, no dark of night can hide me from your eyes. I cannot fall or climb farther than your grace can reach. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace that will not let us go. We are thankful for your grace which keeps us going every day, the grace which you have given to all men, but especially for that special grace which comes to us because of your saving choice. Father, we know that we are not deserving, no one is deserving Salvation is of grace, it's unearned and it's undeserved. And as we sang this morning, if we could try to write down all your love, if all the oceans were ink and every reed a pen, and all of us were scribes by trade, we could not pen down all the infinite riches of your grace and your love towards us. And Father, I pray if there are those here who don't know you, those here who have never repented of their sins, 
those who live every day on your grace yet are not grateful. I pray that you would save them right now. I pray they would call out to you in faith and give their lives to you. And Father, for the rest of us who know you, who have experienced your grace, may we not take it for granted. May we praise you for it and may you, we thank you for it and may we apply it to our lives that we might live for you and give you glory, honor, and praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.